The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Today we're joined by New York Times bestselling author Stephen Rowley to talk about his latest book, The Celebrants, and a different way of looking at death. Well, we feel like we know him because he came and spoke at our celebration of reading. And also, he grew up in Portland, Maine. We have that connection, the Maine connection. Also, he's a Read with Jenna book pick. It's like we were fated to be friends. <laughs> I think so. I, I think so. We want to start the podcast by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe your family, where you grew up, and then how you came to be this best-selling author. <laughs> it was quite a journey. Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm from Portland, Maine, although I was uh, born in New Jersey. So, you know, even though I moved to Maine at a very young age, you know, Mainers will always say I'm from away. I think <laughs> even if you were born a mile across the border in New Hampshire and moved to Maine on your second day on Earth, you're still from away, I think so. <laughs> yes. But Maine has been a wonderful sort of adopted home. And yeah, I went to high school there. And, you know, I credit part of my being able to do what I do today with two things. And one is access to a well-funded public school education. And two, I had a public library card from a very young age and parents who encouraged me to use it. So I'm grateful for both of those things. But that led to college in Boston eventually at Emerson College. I studied film, though, not exactly uh, novel writing. I thought I was going to be a screenwriter, which led me to, to California and Hollywood. And, you know, I had a, a modicum of success. Uh, the difference between screenwriting and, and novel writing, though, is the screenwriters are often the, the low person in the chain of command on films. And it's a very collaborative medium. You're always waiting for, you know, a financier, a director, a producer, an actor, someone to say, you know, so many people to say, yeah to get your projects off the ground. And I was having trouble getting something actually made. And out of that frustration, I had an idea for a story which became my first novel called Lily and the Octopus. And it was also a deeply personal story to me. And so I didn't want that whole collaborative effort for that story. I sort of felt like I had a more singular idea how I wanted to tell it. And I tried writing it as a novel, which also allowed me to flex some different creative muscles. Screenwriting is all dialogue and action and things you can see on a screen. Whereas novel writing gives you access to a character's every internal thought and emotion. And so it was fun to play with those differences. But there's you know, a lot of dialogue in The Celebrants. So there's a lot of dialogue in all from... my writing. I think you'll find that film writing background has influenced the way I write fiction. But I do remember after I sold Lily and I was talking to my editor and she gave me a few notes and said, but I defer to your authorial vision. And I almost fell out of my chair because in 15 years of pursuing screenwriting, no one had ever deferred to my creative anything. So I thought, aha, novel writing it is. <laughs> you like to talk about reinvention and was that a reinvention, right? You became a novel writer, not a screenwriter. Yeah. And it was a way to not abandon my passion, but tailor it and find new ways to pursue it and new creative outlets that I found more emotionally satisfying for me. And I think there's some real truth to that. What really broke through for me for the first time was when I stopped trying 
to tell stories that I thought others wanted to hear, chasing what I thought would sell, and instead wrote something that's so deeply personal. And it was my first book on grief, which is something that I've touched on several times in my writing career. And no surprise, I think when reading it, you felt that authenticity and that's what broke through for me. So grief is a big thing that you're discussing a lot about now. And I know in, in Celebrant, you talk about that. And we're going to go deeper into that. Really excited about talking about grief. Because again, it's, it seems like it's not talked about enough. I do think as a society, the United States in particular is bad on the subject of grief. It's often looked as something that should be temporary or that we need to seclude ourselves and go through it privately and alone, remove ourselves a little bit. That's just not the case. I think, you know, it's truly something if we live properly and love and embrace life fully, you know, we're going to lose and we're going to grieve. And, you know, it should be such a uniting human experience. And yet so many of us feel sort of shame when we're going through it. And instead of surrounding ourselves, sort of separate ourselves. And I think that's a big mistake. Why don't we get into that? Because that's what your new book, The Celebrants, is all about. The crux of the book is about holding funerals for the living. And what an interesting idea. So how did you come up with that? The idea of leaving nothing unsaid, it makes really a lot of sense. Why don't we tell the people we love, we love them? Yeah, while we still have the opportunity, while they're still here. It came from, you know, a personal place. I did lose my best friend from college to breast cancer. She had been sick for some time, so it was not a shock, but it's still affected me greatly, especially in terms of some of the other loss that I've experienced in my life. Friendship loss, it's sometimes hard to convey to others what that means to you. You know, if you lose a parent or something, you know, that's very easy to contextualize for others when you talk about that loss. But we have so many different friends throughout our lives for different reasons. We have best friends who are sometimes closer than our family, but we have friends we may see once or twice a year just for coffee or whatnot. So when you say, you know, a friend of mine passed away, it's often that people don't know sometimes the impact of that loss. And so I was a little adrift. I happened to be in Italy when she passed and, you know, I wanted to cut my trip short and come, you know, racing back to the States. And all of our mutual friends said, no, 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 that's not what she would want. And they said this phrase that stuck with me, you know, very deeply. They said, funerals are for the living. And what they meant by that, of course, is that it's something we go through to comfort each other, comfort those left behind. They had each other to lean on. They were more sort of concerned about me being overseas and uh, and alone and not having someone to lean on in that moment. Sometimes a writer's mind works that way. You know, I took something that they meant sort of as comforting language, but I took it, you know, sort of literally for a moment. What if funerals were for the living? And this idea was kind of born. And so The Celebrants is about a group of college friends who reunite periodically over the years at low moments in their life when they're having a crisis or a hard time. And they throw each other their funeral so that they can hear all the wonderful things that are said about them and be reminded how important they are to the others. And hopefully through that ceremony of sorts, that it's a cleansing and allows them to move forward with renewed strength and a reminder of why life is, is worth living. If we did that, do you think it would change our view of death and our grieving? 
I forgot a lot of questions like, you know, would I want to attend my own living funeral in this way? You know, I've joked like, oh, if we're going to do it, let's go full on and let's do a roast or something like really rake me over the coals because uh, I like to laugh a lot too. But, you know, writer, I say that as a writer, you know, I'm sometimes uncomfortable. Writers are observers. And so sometimes we're uncomfortable as the center of so much attention. So personally, I don't quite know how I would react to that. But I do think that I wish people were more open about the impact that we have on each other's lives. And there are so many people who have affected us in positive ways that probably have no idea. It could have just been a little thing in one day, one little act of kindness. They may never know the impact that it had. I think back to some of the important people in my life. You know, I mentioned earlier having a library card. The children's librarian at my hometown library, you know, set me on a path of reading for life. I always think about the impact that that had. You know, I was just one of many children in that children's reading room. She wouldn't remember me, but certainly, you know, I remember her. So there's all these people I wish I could go back and tell, you know, the impact they truly had on our life. And I think how different life could be if we were truly able to thank everyone for the impact that they've had. Doro's actually just recently given a talk on gratitude and just the importance of gratitude. So as you're talking, it's sort of, it is, it's a mindset. It's going into relationships with an open heart, gratitude for this person that's in our lives. And we also talk a lot about the interconnectedness of wellness. If you're well, I'm well, if our earth is well, you know how it all ties in. And it inspires us, I think, to do acts of kindness too, if we really stop and recognize how important those acts have been in our own lives. I do think, you know, if we could look at death a little bit differently, I, you know, we're on the heels of some trauma, you know, just going through COVID and losing, you know, a million people in this country. And I don't think we've properly addressed that. The idea was to sort of move on as quickly as possible. But, you know, that is a huge number of people that we lost. And there's a lot of grief. And, and it's not just loss, you know, not all of us have lost a person per se, but we certainly lost time. And we lost the ability to be together in the same way. So this is a book that was very much born out of that too. You know, what did we miss the most? Sometimes it was just simple things with our friends or our quiet dinner party out of that year. So the idea of writing about friendship and celebrating friendship is also born out of that time. But, you know, we don't know yet the impact of the past few years, whether it just be kids who miss formative experiences or graduations or proms. That's going to have an effect carrying forward, I think. And it's important that we talk about wellness in the shadow of that. I think it's, it's so important what you do. Senior citizens, you know, I mean, they were isolated, put behind bars. And, you know, we read about it, but like in my case, it happened to my mom. And we're like, wow. I mean, that was the thing that really threw her into dementia or threw her into the loneliness aspect. And now she's 92 and really suffering. So like you said, it's things that we didn't think about as we were going through it. And now it's a loss. You mentioned earlier that you like to laugh. You are very funny. And in the book, you use dark humor to talk about death and things like that as a mechanism maybe for grief. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think humor, you know, for me, humor has always been the way through or it's played a big role in healing, whether it's the ability to find a laugh, you know, as a distraction and just give us renewed strength to get us through the day. Or sometimes it is the ability to laugh at ourselves and our situation a little bit to remind us that there's still room for joy as we move forward, even in the throes of grief. I really think, you know, for my characters, you know, the ability to laugh 
not only do I want to give that experience to readers, you know, as they experience a story, but I want to give it to my characters as well, the ability to laugh and to make each other laugh, because that's always something I want to honor. It's strange here because we're talking about books, but I'm going to mention movies here, you know, movies that I watched that my mom had introduced me to, like Terms of Endearment, say, or Steel Magnolias or Beaches, you know, these were, I, I grew up, I was like, so I good. love these comedies. Yeah. <laughs> I love laughing. And then they're like, oh, you mean the movies where the mom <laughs> dies, where the daughter dies, or where the best friend dies. And I was like, oh, yeah. But the way I remember those movies is there was so much celebration of life and laughing in them. And that always sort of set me on a path where I love to marry two big emotions. And there's truly heartfelt moments with these characters, but also hopefully you will laugh. As a writer, that's difficult, you know, trying to make someone laugh, truly laugh out loud. And, you know, before the end of the book, make them cry. Those are difficult things. And sometimes it's, you know, I take it very seriously. Sometimes it's scene by scene going through with a scalpel. You do one joke too many in a scene and it can take the air out of the seriousness of your message. But if you go too long, conversely, without giving the reader the ability to laugh and take a breath, you know, it can sometimes veer too dark. And so that's where I really try to focus on my work is finding that balance. I remember at my dad's funeral, I mean, we adored him. It was a very sad time, but also we laughed a lot. We were able to find something to connect, to laugh about that was funny. I do think they can go hand in hand. Particularly with a life, you know, what a life he had. Really remarkable. And so there is room for the sadness, for the loss, but also the celebration of remarkable achievements. Yes. And for the laughter that families have together and remembering those inside jokes sometimes. Yes. And, and knowing that those memories and those jokes don't have to die too. That's funny. You, you bring up your, your dad in the celebrants. There's a, uh, one of the funniest sequences is a skydiving uh, yes. scene, which it I had such funny. fun writing. But <laughs> With uh, I think of your dad skydiving. Was it his 90th? Yes, he did it at 85 <laughs> and 90 and all those times. Have you ever been skydiving? No, no I want to. I went once in my 20s. Did and you? I think. I think that was that was enough. Uh, <laughs> Trisha, you and I had we had planned. We were scheduled. We were yeah. going to skydive with the Golden Knights. Yeah, remember the wind was bad that day, and that's when Danny was. Yeah. So my my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer during that time. So when we talk about grief and we talk about death, it's been my life's work for this past ten years, really digging deep into it. It changes everything, but it also, by you bringing this up in celebrants, it just reminds us, as you're saying, why there's so much joy to live and why today matters. What we all have in common is we are all going to die. And so how do you rectify that? Not only is the same fate in store for us, you know, we're not all guaranteed the same amount of time. And so that is another, you know, sort of seize the day kind of attitude that I try to have. You know, I'm a gay man of a particular age. Yeah. I turned 50 during COVID, and so I wasn't able to have a big celebration in the way I think perhaps I had imagined it. But when I stopped and thought about it, I thought, oh, you know, I never really did imagine turning 50. And the reason for that is because when I came out in the early 1990s, you know, more men were dying of AIDS, you know, than even in the mid-1980s. And so when I came out, I thought life was, you know, and, and the books and the movies that reflected characters 
like myself, you know, were very dark. They were about lives lived in the shadows and lives that were unfortunately cut very short. And at 20 years old, I thought life was going to be kind of lonely and sad and short. And instead, I found the opposite to be true, that life has been joyous and filled with community and comparatively long. But I thought, you know, when I look in a mirror some morning and I'm not happy with what I see, or I, you know, there's too much gray and I get down on myself, I think, you know what, stop it. Because there's so many young men who didn't get to live to see 50 and would have traded anything to be here to this day. So I try to honor that too, that I'm lucky, you know, that growing older is a true privilege and we're lucky with the time we have. Was coming out difficult for you? I think it's hard for everyone, but we forget how quickly the society has evolved and changed, you know, particularly on this issue, and it hasn't gotten better for everyone, you know, and it's important to acknowledge that there's still work to be done. But it was difficult at that time. And then things quickly got a lot better. Like marriage equality is not something I ever thought I would see in my lifetime. And we've seen remarkable societal change on that front. And I think, you know, in part, stories and storytelling is so important to that. When we see change on social issues, it's in part because people have been given the opportunity to tell their stories. And it's harder to deny someone their base humanity once you've learned about their lives a little bit. So I think that's somewhere where books truly can play a positive role and why I think reading is so yes. important and particularly Opening reading authors who don't look like you. You mentioned Jenna's book club pick. She has extraordinarily diverse authors and taste in reading. And I just, I love the books that she picks and I'm so glad that she's been able to celebrate those stories with the platform she's been given. You mentioned marriage and you're married to someone named Byron Lane, who is also an author. I know. <laughs> so what is that like? Two authors and do you bounce ideas off each other? And do you edit for each other? How does that go? I have writer friends who assume that it would be an absolute nightmare to be under one roof with another writer. <laughs> um, but for me, you know, at least our house is quiet. You know, I felt for my friends. <laughs> You're both um, writing. You know, not to go back to COVID constantly, but who were suddenly sharing workspace with a spouse that they weren't used to. You know, they were attorneys or executives or bankers or whatever, and were on loud conference calls all day. I was like, no, 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 my house is quiet. <laughs> so I like, I like that. We've navigated it pretty well. Not that there haven't been a learning curve. And I think the important thing as you mentioned, you know, do we edit each other and whatnot? We're each other's first reader. But the thing that we've had to learn to do is, okay, if he's asking me to read something, is he asking me as a spouse? In which case I want to put on, you know, my cheerleader hat and just encourage him to keep going. Or is he asking me, you know, as another writer or to look at something with an editorial eye? It doesn't work out so well when I want to tweak his jokes. Uh, <laughs> that's what we've learned to back off a little bit. Um, but it is a helpful resource to have uh, in the same house. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was funny about the book is the title. And it came about because Mia, who's a character in the book, said, so you're the funeral people. And he <laughs> thought that sounded so terrible. So, no, we're the celebrants. I yeah, love that. I love that, too, because, you know, there is like what you say, you say, like wedding guests. There's a word for other, you know, but funeral attendees, you know, it sounds so cold. <laughs> what are we truly there to do? What is the spirit yeah. of what we're there? And funerals at their best are a celebration of life. And so that's where the title kind of came from. I wanted to honor that. Like, what are we doing when we gather? 
you know, what is the best possible purpose for us being together? And that is to celebrate. I love that as a title, and I hope people find some meaning in that. This book is, was it inspired by The Big Chill or it's been likened to That it? was definitely something, you know, as writers, we often marry several ideas together. So, you know, I said I had the loss of my friend. Now, what is something, what do I want to say with that exactly? I keep coming back to the pandemic, but early on, you know, in those first few weeks when we thought, oh, this will be a fun two week thing and let's just, you know, nestle in and have the most fun we can with it. And like everyone turned to Netflix or streaming and like, what can I watch? What might be a comfort movie? And I stumbled on The Big Chill as a movie that I remembered a group of college friends reuniting after the death of one of their own. And it was about middle age and seeing where they were, but also like, what would the back halves of their lives look like? And I'm, so I'm, I'm watching this movie and I'm struck by the fact that everyone was 35, right. 35 <laughs> years old. And that's what truly was considered middle age, you know, 40 years ago. And I thought, you, all of you are so young. What are you talking <laughs> you about? You don't know anything yet. Yeah, exactly. But I was struck by how much life had changed. You know, we talked about how society has evolved and moved forward a little bit. And there was something about the big chill as a title, Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote and directed the movie, would say was about that sort of middle period in life where you just kind of chill out a little bit. You're married, you have your kids, you probably own a house, which is something more people used to be able to do. <laughs> and you probably had one job that you worked until you collected a pension and retired. And so there was not a lot of big life changes in those years once you were sort of locked in in those key ways. Nowadays, though, I was struck by families may divorce or we may have blended families or the fact that not everybody works one job anymore. This is a gig economy often. People, we, you know, we touched on reinvention earlier. There's room for more than one career. And certainly we work for more than one company. And there's a lot of upheaval and room for great stories now in these middle years that I was inspired by, you know, stories of great change and again, reinvention. So it was fun to sort of revisit the framework of that movie a little bit, what with a more sort of modern eye on what those years encompass and then aging those characters up a little bit to reflect more what we think of middle age. Which is 50s. The characters 50, are on their yeah, 50s. 50s. I'm going to go into, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go into <laughs> 60s. Listen, I embrace change, but I don't need to be a senior citizen just yet. Right. No. <laughs> None of us do. When we were discussing this podcast, Trisha said, do you think any of the characters are based on you? Would the author take characteristics from themselves or from other people? How does that work? I have a close-knit group of college friends, and when they asked me what I was working on and I would tell them a little bit, you could see the trepidation in their eyes. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I do say, you know, like, God help you if you are related to or friends with the writer. You know, we are sponges, so be careful. <laughs> be careful what you say. The biggest arguments my husband and I get into sometimes are leaving an event together, and we'll get back in the car, and we'll be like, that's mine. You know, we'll take a little story <laughs> here that night and try to claim it for ourselves a little bit. You can't use that. I'm using that. The truth is, for these characters, I may take little bits of everybody, but they're composites, you know. And it's true. There's a little bit of me in every single character that I write. Absolutely. There's something I identify with, with each one, whether it may be a personality trait or their humor or their worldview on some issue. You know, there's a little bit of me in all of those characters. So my friends can relax. It's not a, <laughs> you know, it's not a takedown of anyone or exposing anyone's secrets. And then a healthy dose of fiction mixed in. 
In the book, the friends start wanting to maybe talk to the people that have passed. What do you think about afterlife or all that? How the does Ouija that play? board. The Ouija board. The Ouija board, yeah. <laughs> For me personally, you know, I was not raised with any particular religion. I've sort of embraced the not knowing and I don't mean to put anybody else down, but for me personally, that there was a little bit of arrogance in saying we could know exactly what's going to happen. And I think it's a good lesson for life, too, is that just sort of embrace the uncertainty. I have found some comfort in that. I don't know. It's above my pay grade to know. What I do know is that I have the ability to live a certain way while I'm here and to behave in a certain way while I'm here and to try to share stories and my views on the world, which I think will make this a better place to be while we are here. And so I kind of make that my mission. Now, do I still sometimes a memory of someone I've lost pop in my head and, you know, and I can have a little conversation with them? Sure. I think that's healthy. It's also fun. It's, it's just like they're not gone entirely. We recently on our podcast had a gentleman whose son committed suicide. He talked a lot about talking about suicide, making sure people are remembered and talked about and because people tend not to. You touch a little bit on suicide in the book. It's another topic like grief, rarely discussed. Can you talk about these topics that we don't really talk about? There's a taboo to that too. And I think like if we're truly honest with ourselves, not all of us would go that far, but I'm sure there have been moments in our lives where it doesn't seem as distant an idea as I think, you know, some people do. You know, life can be very painful and it can be very hard. And I feel very fortunate not to have compounded, you know, mental health issues or anything like that that would complicate my ability to access the tools I would need to help me when I'm feeling overwhelmed or that there isn't the ability for change. And I think that's it, that people in those moments feel so overwhelmed and then just have no vision or ability to see that it's not always going to be that way. And so, you know, I have tremendous empathy for that. And it was just one of those things, if we were more open about our hardships. And these are characters who, as I said, reassemble at each of their low moments in life. They sort of make this pact. You can reassemble the group once. So sort of choose wisely. And then over the years, we see, you know, bad things happen to these people because life does throw complications at all of us. If we were able to ask for the help that we needed and trusted that people could be there. I really do think that would go a long way towards giving people hope that there could be a brighter day and none of us are alone as we think. That's so true. You know, another thing that you talked about at Celebration Reading was the banning of books and how you felt about that. Can you talk about that and what your thoughts are around that? It seems like we are at a precarious place right now where long fought battles that we thought were won, it does seem like we're slipping backwards a little bit. Book banning is one of those areas, you know, rights for women. I think about that a lot because it's not like there's not history to study. Those who have banned books have always come out on the wrong side of history. That's just not a winning place to go, and which isn't to say that parents don't have a right to monitor what their children are reading or decide, you know, what's age appropriate within their own household. But there are people who need stories, as, I, as we were just talking about, who need to know that they're not alone, that there are other people like them. And that's where having a wide breadth of stories available for the people who need them, 
I think is always a good thing. You know, I do feel passionate about because, uh, you know, it's often right now it's LGBTQ stories that are on the front lines of these conversations and fights right now. I just feel, you know, having these stories available in an age-appropriate way is always the best option for a society. Well, just diversity and discussion, just different people at the table just makes sense. Well, I do think, you know, we live with a lot of fear and there's a lot of people who are willing to reach for power by pointing at someone else and saying, you know, let's be afraid of them. And I always think that's a bad motivation to want to lead that leadership requires bringing people together instead of trying to divide us further. So we live with a lot of division. We live with a lot of fear. And I think the antidote to that a lot of times is these stories where you can learn about other people and their experiences and sort of understand, you know, if someone is trying to come to this country, you know, how bad could their lives have been, you know, that would drive them to walk hundreds of miles with the children and try to cross a border or something? Having access to stories like that, that sort of illuminate why someone would make that life choice, I think, would hopefully allow for us to make a more compassionate policy or decisions. You have these very well-developed characters in this celebrant, really interesting people, all very different. Who is your favorite character in the book? Or is it like having children and you can't pick? (laughs) Well, I'll say this, like, you know, people have asked me which of my books are my favorite. And that's when I say those are like my children. You know, I I love them all equally, but maybe for slightly different reasons, but I love them all equally. Characters, though, I sort of feel like I'm more entitled to have a favorite. Uh, It would be more forgivable. In The Celebrants, I think it's Naomi, who is a Japanese-American woman who is, uh, the others are a little bit afraid of her. She has a bite to her. She has a sarcasm, you know, sort of a no-nonsense kind of character. And I love the idea. One of the characters mentions, you know, like, why do we have a friend that we're all slightly afraid of? It's true. <laughs> I think it's And relatives, sometimes. I might add. And relatives, yeah. <laughs> I think it's important sometimes to know that someone is going to tell you the absolute truth in all circumstances not what they think you need to hear and that there is value in that. But she was certainly the most fun to write. I had done a draft of it where, you know, the characters were, you know, it's like, I'm really mad at you for this reason or something. And I thought like, well, this isn't reading authentic to how lifelong friends can speak to each other. You wouldn't say, I'm mad at you. You might say in a moment, I'm going to kill you. You You don't mean it, but it's like that. There is something fun about writing lifelong friends where you can sometimes not be the best version of yourself around them and trust that these are the people who are going to love you and know your heart truly and will forgive and accept you sometimes even when you're not at your best. And so that's the sort of great joy of writing a book about friendship and a group of friends is giving them these inside jokes, giving them a shared history, letting the reader trust that they truly all do love and care about each other, and then doing that in a way that doesn't exclude the reader. So you really want to make them feel like they're a part of this friendship group too. So you're inviting readers to be a friend as well. And that's, that's How long so did it take you to write Celebrants? And how do you do it? I mean, how do you get your steps in and how does it all work? It's just something I've done now. You know, my fifth book is coming out in May. I have several in a drawer that will never see the light of day. So I've done this enough times now that good or bad, I sort of understand the process. So it's hard to remember that to some people that seems like to me running a marathon, like I was like, how could I ever run 20, you know, like, or building a bridge? I just have no idea like where to begin for some other thing. 
for novel writing, it begins with a central question, usually, or, an, you know, an idea kernel. What do I want to say about this? How do I want to answer this question? Or what do I want to say about this idea? And then inviting characters in, playing with them a little bit, seeing who sticks, you know, with the celebrants, I was almost like auditioning actors in a way. I had several other <laughs> character outlines for other people who I thought might be part of this group, and they just didn't make the final cut. So it was assembling the right cast of characters. And then I know writers who will outline the entire story before they even begin. And for me, the hardest part of the job is butt in chair. It's showing up, you know, at the computer every day. There's the, you know, we're wonderful procrastinators. By not outlining, by not knowing everything that's going to happen, it gives me more excitement about showing up for work. If I don't know what happens, then I'm going to work to sort of discover. Instead of if it's outlined to within an inch of its life, you know, which is a valid process. I know many writers who do that. But to me, it feels like factory work at that point, like just assembling something that already exists instead of discovering that day what might happen. So I usually know where I'm going. Um, I've heard it sort of uh, described as the headlight theory of writing. It's like you think about driving at night. I can see as far ahead as those headlights, maybe the high beams, but I don't know what's around in the darkness just beyond that. You mentioned getting in steps. It's like, yeah, you know, like how so do writing, you do it? writing is a very solitary endeavor, but it's also very sedentary. So I have two dogs who poke their cold noses on my legs sometimes and be like, it's time to get up, get out of the chair. <laughs> like, let's go walk. The body is so important to the creative process as well. So getting up, I'm laughing because I literally take steps. I literally get steps in <laughs> and I can put in a podcast or I can put on music, but in the back of my mind, that's like, that's my opportunity to sort of work through some things. Those light bulb moments often come when I'm not sitting at the computer, but when I'm away from the computer. And then do you start running back to the computer? I have learned to use the notes app on my phone in a very judicial way. Yeah. Because that is one sad thing about aging is like ideas are fleeting sometimes. Like you got to get them down before you, <laughs> before they're gone. Can you give us a teaser on the book, your new book? Maybe it's, is it your fifth book? It's my fifth book. It's called The Gunkel Abroad. Uh, it's a sequel to my okay. uh, previous book, The Gunkel. I wrote a book called The Gunkel, which if anyone's not familiar with that term, it's become a sort of slang for a gay uncle, but not just that. It, you know, it harkens back to sort of anti-mame in a way. It's like that relative who has an air of fabulousness, who, who may fly in for Christmas with extravagant gifts, et cetera, then are kind of a mystery and they fly back out of your life. But I was always fascinated with, say, The Sound of Music or Mary Poppins. Auntie Mame was definitely a favorite too. These sort of magical caregivers. The Gunkel was a book about an uncle who takes in his niece and nephew for the summer after the death of their mom. Another book about grief, <laughs> uh, you know, but with children. The Gunkel Abroad, which comes out in May, is a sequel to that book. It takes place five years after the events of the first book, and the children's dad is getting remarried, and they are uh. not happy about it. So this is very much a book about moving forward. How do we make room in our lives for new people and new experiences and embracing change after grief? I'm very excited to sort of share that next chapter. And then the sequel to the anti-mame novel from the 1950s was a book called Around the World with Anti-Mame. Taking the kids abroad was a little hat tip to that as well. We hope everyone reads The Celebrants. Trisha and I really loved reading it. 
So The Celebrants will be out in paperback in March, and the new book, The Gunkle Abroad, comes out May 21st. For information on all of my books and to learn more about me, you can visit me at stephenrowley.com. We're just so happy you joined us today, Stephen, and so thank you so much. I'm grateful for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.